Did you know that you can find just about all of our podcast episodes? We've done more than 50 now. On our website, just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like David Grant, Tom Juneau, Catherine Miles, Lane DeGregory, Christopher Gofford, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I'm going to replay an interview I did with John Woodrow Cox back in October 2013. He was the 12th guest on the show and, at the time, was a general assignment reporter in Pinellas County for the Tampa Bay Times. On this episode, I talked with John about the short narrative stories he was writing for the Floridian Magazine. The series was called Dispatches from Nick's Door. They were short pieces, just 500 words, but painstakingly reported. We talked about two such pieces, one about a woman who was only able to find peace out on the ocean, and another about a senior citizen who is always on the look for a younger woman who will save him from loneliness. That was one that it, it just came about because I just kept going back. And then finally he got to know me well enough that he really just kind of opened up and there was an element of sadness with him. Mm-hmm. And, and you kind of see that as the story unfolds. Cox left the Times in 2014 and went to the Washington Post. He's an enterprise reporter with a focus on narrative journalism there. This year, his series about the impact of gun violence on children in America was named a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in feature writing. He is currently working on a book that will expand on that coverage. He's also written about a flawed sexual assault investigation in the Marines and about a 10-year-old who has HIV. Since joining the podcast, Cox has won several prestigious awards. He won Scripps Howard's Ernie Pyle Award for Human Interest in Storytelling the DART Award for Excellence in Coverage of Trauma, Columbia Journalism School's Meyer Mike Berger Award for Human Interest Reporting, and the Education Writers Association's Heckinger Grand Prize for Distinguished Education Reporting. He's also been named a finalist for the Michael Kelly Award and for the Livingston Award for Young Journalists. His stories have been recognized by Mayborn's Best American Newspaper Narrative Writing Contest and the Society for Features Journalism, among others. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Cox's work, both from the Tampa Bay Times and the Washington Post, on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, I was hoping we could start talking a little bit about the Dispatches series. Um, the real fascinating, short narratives, uh, really, really tightly reported. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how those came about? Sure, sure, absolutely. They uh, they actually began, uh, I think, as all good stories began, over uh, beer and bowling in uh, in St. Petersburg. Melissa Little, uh, the brilliant photographer who shoots uh, all the art for these, she and I were just kind of pitching, uh, brainstorming some ideas for the new Flirtian magazine because Flirtian was moving uh, to a monthly magazine and it had been weekly for for some time. So we were just kind of bouncing ideas around, and we we came up with something that really isn't what dispatches turned out to be. But the the original idea was 
kind of find people in neighborhoods who sort of represented uh, that area and they show how different Tampa Bay was, different parts of Tampa Bay. The, the problem with that idea is that it, it steered us to sort of cliche uh, subject in that, in that area. We were looking for the most representative person, which was kind of the opposite of what we should have been doing. So through some further conversation and, uh, and Bill Durier, who's the editor of... Um, we came up with something kind of more general that we really just wanted to find uh, regular people who had some sort of extraordinary uh, aspect to their life, um, and we were we were looking for people who who we could capture a moment though too. They needed something just sort of beyond a a great background story. Uh, we need something to be happening in their life at the time that we could actually witness and uh, and you know capture. How, how do you? You know, a variety of ways. Um, we we have just asked a lot of sort of uh, in the know. You know, do you know characters? I mean, that's one thing we we've asked. Uh, that's how we Hollywood Kim for the last we got her through a captain in uh, Madeira Beach. We just asked, say, do you know any characters? And and he he knew one. <laughs> we've we've also uh, sometimes set out um, with an idea kind of looking for a type of person. Uh, sometimes that's worked and sometimes it hasn't. A lot of times we end up starting these and we realize uh, in the course of reporting that it's not, we've bailed on, on quite a few of these as well. Um, you know, and, and one or two I think have just come from uh, people like Garth type people who just say, hey, you know, have you heard about this? So it comes, comes from all kinds of different uh, methods and directions. And you mentioned these run in, in the Floridian, uh, Floridian magazine. Um, can you talk a little bit about how a page, is that like one, one short story and one photo, or, or talk about what they look like in the magazine? It is, yeah. It's, it's one, half the page, uh, one single photo, and, and text. It's just, uh, it's just all text, uh, all on one page. Uh, and I think, you know, for me, one thing I like about these, but also a challenge of these, is that you can't, I don't think you can really kind of hum when it's all on one page. Uh, you, if the story doesn't move or it doesn't work, I think it's more obvious in that shortest. Um, it, one, one reason we really liked that idea was let's do it all on one page because it didn't require uh, much of a reader commitment to see the end from the beginning. And we thought, well, if somebody sees one of these beautiful photos, they're going to read the whole story because they, you know, it just doesn't take much of a commitment. Uh, you know, most of these are five five, six hundred words uh, tops. Are there any other reasons you're drawn to that length? You know, it's funny, actually, that I ended up doing these because <laughs> I tend to write long, actually, <laughs> uh, and always have, and editors know that. Um, uh, but I, I, I've, I've loved this process because I like having such emphasis on every, that, you know, every word, every detail has to count uh, in a way that, you know, I think we all did sort of make our, our long form, uh, to, you know, set to that standard, but these, I mean, everything has, I, I, I look at my details, people kind of ask me sometimes is how I pick which details I'm going to pick, and I, uh, it, the analogy, the, the thread of the story, whatever the theme is, because each of these need uh, a very uh, specific idea, the theme specific, and I, I look at it like a thread hanging from a ceiling. And, and all the details in my notebook are orbed around that thread. And it really doesn't matter how good they are, it's how close they are 
to the thread. And I have, you know, I have really good details. Uh, it's gotten easier for me to do that, but that's the test: is is how close, not spot on, with the the theme that I'm trying to tell. Even if it's this great little sort of side anecdote, none of these can go uh, down any rabbit holes. I mean, they just have to stay right on the arc that that we envisioned for it. How many have you done so far? You know, I think uh, six or seven uh, over the course of this year. Do you feel like you're getting, I don't know, the hang of, uh, of them now or um, figuring them out more? You know, I think I, I think I am sort of some shortcuts that maybe uh, in the beginning I was in the wrong mindset. I do sort of have to be in a different uh, when I when I approach these. Um, you know, I've learned that the pre-reporting is is really a part of it. I, I, I spend a lot of time interviewing these people and really getting to know them. I am with them when they're going to have what we think will be the moment that is in the story. Uh, and it's so that I understand what matters in that moment, uh, what what's significant and what is sort of on. I think I go into the moments with some sort of hypothesis of sort of what I think the story will be about. Sometimes that changes because the moment, you know, moments and you don't maybe know what to expect. But um, yeah, I think I've, I've gotten better, but each one is a challenge <laughs> to itself. And, you know, I've, I've even reported a, uh, one right now that I'm not sure how to write it yet. I'm still kind of how to write it and may actually have to go back to this person and, and do some more reporting. And I've you know, reported that one for several months. So some of them, the outline comes to me immediately. I know exactly what the story will be as soon as I'm done reporting. And some of them uh, take some difficult conversations with my editor to kind of brainstorm, you know, what, what the story is and where it's going. How much time do you typically spend reporting uh, these stories? Well, uh, that, that varies some. The last one we did uh, with the, the fishermen in Madeira, I reported that one for like nine months. Uh, um, I had spent a ton of time with her. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was just a really tough one to report, partly because of the nature of the character. She was somebody who, you know, was in and out of jail a lot. She's not, uh, she would have a cell phone for a while and then, and then lose it. Uh, she'd get fired from, from boats that John. And so, you know, we felt like w with her, you know, we had to wait. We just waited, and thankfully the, the editor was really patient. Bill Derrier was really patient, and, uh, and it, it finally came together. Some report that long. I mean, some of them have been a few weeks, but I would say I at least do um, two, two interviews, interviews before, that are several hours each normally uh, before... I, I get to the moment, whatever we think the moment, sort of spend a day with the person. Right. That most recent one, uh, that's the Kim Imhoff piece, is that correct? Right. Yeah, and that's the uh, woman who, she only seems to find peace when she's on the water. Um, she's the one who, how, tell me again how you found her and kind of how you approached her about doing this type of story. Well, we, we started with uh, this guy in Madeira Beach who's a captain who's been there for 40, 50 years, uh, and he knows everybody. So we went to him and said, uh, he's looking for characters. You know, in this, in this sort of fishing world, we're, we're looking for characters. And he threw out a couple of names, and then he said, he's, well, Hollywood Kim, she's a character. And he told us the story uh, that she had assaulted a woman with a... a and A purple... That, 
dildo, What's that? right? A purple dildo, right? Yeah, a purple dildo, right? Which I didn't know right away. There's actually uh, behind how, how I got that specificity of detail. But, you know, he said that. He said, yeah, she, she and, and he's really proud of it, too, that this wasn't like a story she, she uh, didn't want people to know. She kind of wore it as a badge of honor. So, fine, because uh, people didn't really, you know, have a number for her, but we knew where she hung out. So, we just found her on the docks. Uh, she was among, if not the most transparent person that I have ever interviewed. I mean, within, um, within an hour, uh, I knew that her father had raped her and that he had impregnated her. Uh, she, she was really straight up with that, and, and she didn't mind telling me her story. I remember, you know, too, uh, talking to her about who was a crack addict for many years, and she'd been off of it for a couple of years. And I asked her, you know, she might stop drinking because she's been an alcoholic for, you know, decades. And, and she said to me, uh, we're going to stop drinking. You know, this is just this is just who I am. That part of me is never going to stop. And it's not really what people normally say. Even if even if that's true, they normally don't. They say, well, yeah, you know, I'm trying. I'm going to get there. And uh, she was just um, totally honest and, and even willing to let us, you know, really get into her life and uh, and you know just um, give us access to her. There uh, are, are so many good details in the story. The most, I, I think, the one. That- I, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. It's the last sentence, sentence in that first uh, paragraph in that story. And by the way, we've linked to a lot of uh, on the website. Uh, the, that's, the sentence is, In a brawl last year, she hit a woman in the head with a purple battery-operated. Kim went to jail but won the fight. Um, how did, so did you know about that going in? Or tell me about that, about that story. I, I, and that she was I, proud of it, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, she was proud of it. Yeah, she uh, she was proud of it because she won the fight. I mean, that, that's really why she was proud of it. But she, I did know, I did know that, and, and she talked me through the story. Um, but you did with her. She'd been arrested uh, dozens of times. So I requested uh, through the sheriff's office every arrest report that you know uh, from her entire history. And the I was I was uh, <laughs> thankfully I was helped by a oriented um, deputy who included those details. So she didn't necessarily remember uh, the color or the fact that it was battery-operated. She just knew she'd, she'd hit a woman with a dildo and won a fight. But in the, in the arrest report, there it is. It says uh, purple, you know, battery-operated dildo. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's where it came from. The... Uh the, the these stories I don't know why they remind me of the encounters the, the St. Petersburg Times used to do back when you all were still the St. Petersburg Times. Um, did those do the do the I, mean, I imagine you've read those. Um, did this yes. have any impact on on you in wanting to do something like this? You know uh, they did, and as did um, I. Got to give Brady Dennis a lot of credit too. His his three hundred words series was uh, really influential. I mean I I read every one of those over and over. And I mean, he, he was working with less space um, than I am. But, you know, I guess what I learned from those stories is, is that things this short, I mean, any story, you really want a lot of movement. Uh, but those stories really moved. I mean, it was incredible how much they moved in that short space. And that's what I, I try to do with all these is I kind of, I want to start you somewhere and, and maybe have you expecting something that the story is going to go one way and then it goes just a totally different way. Um, you know, I'm trying to surprise people uh, as much as I can, and 
and uh, kind of keep you just going from paragraph to paragraph and uh, the story kind of unraveling in front of you. But yeah, the, the, certainly the encounters uh, was a big influence and, and the 300 words, uh, which are just, you know, brilliant. Um, both of those were big influences. Yeah, the photography is great as well. Melissa, um, who takes the photos, um, can you talk a little bit about how that, I guess, helps you tell the story? Yeah, I mean, she is, uh, she's brilliant. And, and these, these have to work um, in, in balance with each other. So, you know, sometimes I have a lot harder time getting the words than she has uh, getting the photos, and sometimes she has a lot harder time getting the photos than, than I have getting the words. Uh, and they have to, they both have to work in, in a way that I think, uh, no other project I've worked on, do you need that sort of balance? I mean, if I have great words, but we, we don't have, um, a good enough photo, it doesn't work and, and vice versa. Uh, Melissa, one thing about her is she understands story in a way, uh, that I have, I have, uh, never seen in, in a photographer. She and I have, uh, lengthy discussions about the stories. You know, we brainstorm going in, uh, and, you know, she just she's able to capture kind of the part that I can't. Uh, a lot of times, I mean, I think the photo of Kim says so much. I mean, she's somebody you so desperately want to see if you just read the text, and you can see everything that I, you know, maybe sort of toward the end of the story that I'm trying to explain to you is the as the boat's coming back in, and she's kind of dreading um, everything that 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 is land to her, which is bad. I mean, that's 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 alcoholism. That's maybe going to die one day on land, uh, she captures that so perfectly. And, and um, yeah, I mean, the, the relationship Melissa and I have, and we've spent a lot of time on these things. And, and like I said, I mean, we talk through it, and, and she, uh, she oftentimes asks questions or, or collects details that, that make these stories. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's great to have somebody like that to work with. Yeah, I'm looking at the photo of um, Diamond Jim. Uh, is it Copernic? Kaepernick, Kaepernick yes. um, from the story uh, "Looking for Love in Sun City Center." Can you talk a little bit about that story? Yes, yeah, that was um, that was one of the, my favorites, just because it was. I really liked Jim. He was a he was a great character. You know, I I had uh, a long, long time ago I had heard stories that the uh, the STD rates among kind of these retirement communities was higher, and I don't know if that's actually true, but it was something that I had heard. So. I, I had always imagined that there have to be, uh, because the women tend to outnumber men in those communities, there has to be a, uh, a guy um, who is sort of the Don Juan of, of one of these communities. So we reached out to probably our, our uh, best known retirement community. It's called uh, Sun City Center, and it's in uh, Hillsborough County. And we reached out to the... Um, the woman who I think it was she's the head of the Chamber of Commerce over there because we had heard that they had like a um, a uh, calendar of of the most eligible bachelors in Sun City Center. So we took her to breakfast and we kind of pitched her this idea and she loved it and she gave us a couple of uh, a couple of candidates. And pretty much when I heard Diamond Jim Copernick when that was his name, it was we thought well that's probably our guy. <laughs> So, uh, you know, he was, a, he was somebody who I had to just spend a lot of time interviewing because the first, the first image of him, even when we met him, was sort of that Don Juan and that he was perfectly happy in his life and he had everything he wanted. He had a nice car and he had this great pad and he had kegs in his house and <laughs> uh, a pool and a hot tub and he just, 
he he you know uh, had this image of himself and he portrayed it to us that that everything was fine everything was kind of perfect in his life and we just spent more and more time together and I went back and I went back and I went back and I realized early on too that he wasn't being totally honest with me and and um just not I guess totally open with me not honest but he just wasn't being totally open with me so that was one that it, it just came about because I just kept going back. And then finally he got to know me well enough that he really just kind of opened up. And there was an element of sadness with him. Mm-hmm. And and you kind of see that as the story unfolds. Talk a little bit about the story structure and kind of how that kind of sadness unfolds. So the way we, uh, the way we structured this story, uh, the idea was to kind of make the reader believe it was one thing in the beginning. Uh, and, and, and that's really that this guy was, was Don Juan. He is, he is Don Juan. You know, he's... He's, uh, you know, in, in the, the image of him certainly portrays that too. You know, he's, he's got uh, a nice watch on, he's got rings on, he's got gold chain, and, and he's uh, hosing himself down with, um, you know, 212 sexy men cologne. So I think, you, you know, you get this image of him, you know, he calls this house the playpen. You get a certain image of him that I want you to think, okay, the story is going this way. And then uh, by the... Um, the fourth paragraph, really. So at this point, you know that he was Mr. January in the Bachelor calendar, um, that he's, you know, one of Sun City Center's most eligible bachelors. And then it kind of turns on the fourth paragraph. Mm-hmm. And that's when you t- I, I tell you that he'd been divorced, uh, that he wonders sometimes what his parents would think about him because they had been married for, for 57 years and they were deeply in love. And he acknowledged to me that he never had been. He acknowledged that he uh, had never cried over a woman. And and then finally, you hear that his ex-wife told him he would die a lonely old man. And a part of him sort of wonders. You know, he doubts it, but he wonders. And and the story kind of turns then, and it becomes something that's a little bit more sad, that he is a guy who, who kind of wants to find true love. He's unwilling to maybe accept uh, the realities of, of his life and, and what it would take to find true love. Um, but that's a story that I thought... It, it as as well as any of these kind of starts in one place and takes you somewhere uh, far different, and that's I'm, I'm trying to do that in in every one of these stories. Really, a full arc uh, in a really short space, and I think this one does that uh, maybe as well as any because the, the the landing spot for this story, the ending is is kind of sad. I mean, it is you know he he doesn't find her and he falls asleep on on the couch. Yeah, the amazing thing about the story is it starts out and it's like full of hope and confidence and then it ends that that ending is just so sad um i don't know why um but it it really is just a a really sad ending and i think it's set up by that fourth paragraph especially you know the the thought of him dying a lonely man and then and then you see him alone at night uh at the end of the night so uh did you go to uh like to the clubs or whatever with him i did yeah i went to the bar in in a pre-reporting uh when I was just kind of getting background with him and seeing what he was like in that environment, I went to this. I went to this bar with him, and and that's kind of when it started to the, the reality of his story and his life unfolded a little bit more clearly to me. Like it, it became more clear that that he, you know, he didn't always get the girl. You know that 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 was that was the image he portrayed, but it wasn't always the case. That um, he was a guy, sort of like any other guy, who who. Uh, you know, struggles sometimes to, to meet women and isn't always um, just perfectly charming. And, you know, I, I will say, though, that one thing about this story, and we debated the, the ending, I think, 
could have ended uh, without the quote at the end. There's a, there's a quote at the end where he says, you know, this, the penultimate paragraph says he, he, you know, he fell asleep in his living room chair. She didn't call. And then the next graph is a quote. It said, there's always another day. He said later, never say never. And we, we debated some. Should it end on she didn't call and just have that be the ending? And I kind of felt like that wasn't, that wasn't the ending closest to reality mm-hmm. because he wasn't crushed by that, you know. He he was just kind of ready to uh, to reload the next day and give it another shot, and that was really important to me. I mean, the quote wasn't perfect; it was sort of a cliche, you know, "Never say never." Sort of, it's a cliche quote, but it was it was closer to reality than maybe as a writer the ending that you want. Because she didn't call is a really kind of nice, sad ending. Uh, I, I liked though that you know, I, I sort of. Uh, made this argument to Bill, and he agreed that that it was we wanted to be as close to real life uh, as we could, and that was that that quote kind of got us there. Yeah, that, that's great. I mean, it really shows who he is. I think uh, really well. Um, I, I talked a little bit, um, or, or you know, when we were exchanging email, we talked a little bit about how you cover crime um, as well. You you cover a lot of crime, uh, and talked a little bit about how, uh, for me, anyways. Um, Right, covering crime is, has always been a really good training ground um, to do narrative. Uh, right. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, um, what effect it's had on you um, as, as a reporter and as a writer. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's where I learned uh, narrative, especially especially narrative on deadline, because uh, you normally, the nature of crime stories, you got to turn them around uh, in a day. And I think one thing that forces you to do a lot of times you were, when you sort of going through your first draft anyways, I don't tend to refer to my notebook a lot until I've written it. Um, so the, the best details tend to stick out to you. Uh, you just remember them. And normally, you know, if you have two hours to write something or an hour if you're on deadline, that's all that, that comes to you. I, I, think, I think another thing certainly about crime is that it, it, there's a built-in narrative there. You know, there's, there is, there's always just a built-in story uh, and it's about, again, just collecting the, the details that matter. I, I covered crime uh, for the Times for about the first year and a half or so that I was here. And, um, yeah, I mean, that was my, my training ground. Uh, you wrote a story in March 2012 um, about a nine-month-old who drowned in the, after falling into a swimming pool. Um, and I, I think that's probably one of the most haunting cop story I think I've ever read. I think I mentioned to you I had my... Uh, advanced reporting class read it uh, earlier this semester um, because I think it shows what you can do with observation. Um, can you talk a little bit about that story and kind of um, uh, how, how it came about for you, uh, like what was going on that day and kind of what took you out to Spring Hill? Sure, sure. You know, that, that, was, a, that was a rough day. Um, I had earlier that week. I had actually covered a story about uh, another uh, crime story about a, a guy who had uh, shot his wife uh, in the back of the head, and the story was about um, uh, it was about his uh, their, her son. It was her son who had actually washed the blood in the bathroom, cleaned up the blood in the bathroom because he didn't want uh, he didn't want his family. Uh, to remember his mother that way, and and so that that was that was like on a Monday, and then on a Wednesday, 
uh, I was kind of emotionally exhausted from from that because you know I'd gone in the bathroom with this guy and the bucket was still there. It just was it was just sort of a, a wrenching experience. So two days later, uh, Wednesday, we hear on the scanner. It was on the scanner that um, basically that you know a baby had been pulled out of a, out of a pool and was unresponsive, and there was an address. So uh, Will Vragovich and I, who's the photographer. Uh, you know, I, I actually didn't want to go. I mean, I really did not want to go that day. But we, we got in the car and we went. And we were getting there uh, right after they had they had loaded the child in um, the ambulance. And the mother pulled up just after we got there. And she um, started to get back in her car to follow the ambulance. And the deputy stopped her. And both Will and I were pretty tight with uh, the deputies there. And, and we knew uh, just a few minutes later that, that the child had died. So that was a huge challenge for reporting that because I knew what was coming, you know, that the parents didn't know. Inside the house was the father, and he had been home alone. These were, these were by all accounts, tremendous parents. They worked opposite shifts so that somebody could be home uh, with the kids all the time and the father was inside and they wouldn't let his wife in the house and uh, you know this was a detail that uh, that didn't appear in the story um, thanks to Mike Wilson really who, who uh, is so good at um, kind of being sensitive mm -hmm. to these things inside the house uh, the father was was vomiting he was so overwhelmed that he was vomiting and they wouldn't let his wife inside so you know, I didn't interview anybody. The whole the span of that reporting was about 45 minutes. And I just, I stood there in the street uh, at, a, at a safe distance um, and uh, watched the wife. You know, she was pacing uh, this kind of uh, gravel driveway next door, smoking cigarettes, and just kind of talking to herself and yelling at the cops because she wanted to get in the house. And uh, just waiting, you know, just waiting and watching. I didn't interview anybody. I didn't talk to anybody uh, other than, you know, some stuff uh, with the with the, the officer with the deputies. And then finally, um, you know, they let her in the house, and it was like slow motion because I knew what was coming. I knew, okay, well, you know, they're about to tell these people that their their child has died. And you know that that moment standing outside, I'll never, I'll never forget that the, the scream um, from from his father and he comes just exploding out of this house and collapses onto his knees and he's just screaming I mean just screaming and and you know I, I debated sort of I think the only place in that story where I do anything quote-unquote sort of writerly is is when I'm describing how um, how he uh, how, how the, the scream sounded because I couldn't there was no I couldn't put an adjective or an adverb in that to sort of describe the, the way the scream sounded, but I did see these deputies who I know who'd been on uh, with the sheriff's office for 30 years. They turned away, and that was the way. Uh, that was kind of I thought the, the the way to describe it. Uh, it was the way that people, the reader, could really understand how awful it was because it was hard to, unless you were there, it was really hard to explain. Um, and then you know, in a in a in a moment that I'll probably. <laughs> I'll never have a moment like this again as a reporter. You know, the, the wife um, and the husband, they get in the car. They get in the, the, the detective's car right in front of us. I mean, we're, you know, outside the police tape right in front of us. 
he's explaining to his wife how it happened. He's telling her that, you know, he left the door open, or that I think it was, um, the door was left open, that uh, the kid, you know, got out. It was just for a moment, and that he couldn't save him. And, and I, was, I was kind of so overwhelmed in that moment that I couldn't get the quotes exact, because I was just like, I was overwhelmed. I mean, I remember when he came out of the house, I took a step back, and it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily like, uh, you know, I need to give him space. It was, it was me kind of recoiling because uh, I was I was witnessing such a, a raw human moment that I was uncomfortable. I was just so uncomfortable being there, and and I, again, I, I didn't get I didn't get the quotes exactly. I, mean, I had it all in my notebook, but I, you know, so that's why at the end of the story we we paraphrase or we or we do the um, italics because mm-hmm. uh, it's you know I just didn't get it word for word because I was just kind of overwhelmed uh, in that moment like everybody else was. Did you get much feedback on that story? Uh, what did people? I, I know. Um, the, I think there were, we had some. There might have been some some debate on on Gangry dot com about you know the ethics of being there in that moment. Um, I'm curious what I mean. Maybe readers said and, and what what other people said. You know, I kind of expected there to be uh, more criticism uh, than there ended up being. Um, you know, there was a healthy, uh, debate on Gangri and, uh, you know, I, I felt a little bit guilty and not because I felt like I'd done anything wrong uh, at all because I felt like I didn't. I mean, I gave these people a lot of space. I didn't approach them. Um, and, and I felt like we were really sensitive, as sensitive as we could be. There were, there were details that we took out of that story to protect that family. Uh, but you know, one thing I, I felt compelled to do was to go back uh, and and face them. And if they were really angry at me, give them a chance to tell me that, <laughs> how, uh, how, you know, what a terrible thing I had done. So Will and I, um, maybe a week, maybe not even that, uh, just a few days later, we went back to their house and we, we knocked on the door and a part of me just didn't want, <laughs> didn't want them to answer. But they did. And... And we just told them who we were and told them how sorry we were uh, for what they'd, we'd, what they'd gone through and that if they wanted to tell their story, they could. And, you know, they never ended up calling me, but they were really thankful that we came and um, thought it was just a good lesson, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always hear, this is obviously not, not the degree of importance, but sports columnists, you know, kind of when they write the really tough column, they always talk about, well, you got to show up the next day. Mm-hmm. I think if, we're, if we were going to invade people space like that, we needed to also go back and kind of give them a chance to, to face us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really glad I did that, and I was especially glad in the way they reacted to me. Right. So are you working on anything uh, uh, that's going to be coming out sometime soon? Other yeah, than your normal daily stuff that you're doing soon. on a daily basis as a general assignment reporter. Yeah, I've uh, you know just got done with a, a variety of a variety of uh, things off off the beat, uh, but um, we're working on uh, we're working on a couple of dispatches right now. I think we're uh, we got one that we're hoping to get on a guy who um, who is living in a tent with his, uh, sort of a sad story. I don't know a lot about it yet, but he's living in a tent up in Hernando County with his uh, disabled sister and his dog. 
and uh, he lost his home and his wife died of cancer. So, um, yeah, we're, we're working on one right now, which hopefully will run uh, in December. That's the goal right now. But. Well, great. John, thanks for joining us. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Matt. Gangrey the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. That was an interview I did with John Woodrow Cox back in October of 2013. When we talked, he was a reporter at the Tampa Bay Times. Now he's an enterprise reporter at the Washington Post. As usual, we've linked to several of his stories, including the ones we talked about in this interview, on our website. You can find that at www.gangreadapodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.